Hello and welcome to Romaniacs. I'm Dorian Linsky and joining me this week so masked up that we make Bane look like Desmond Swain are three of our regulars. <laughs> Roz Taylor is editor of the LSE's Brexit blog. Hi Roz. Hello. Roz, you've been back on London's famous Tube last week. Uh, how, how was that experience? Well, it was remarkably like travelling on the tube in the old days before coronavirus. But there was one big difference I noticed where the there were basically hardly any ads anymore um, because presumably the tube can't flog them. Uh, people can't afford to place them. And uh, anyway, a lot of the events that would normally be being advertised are not happening, for example. So what you get is you this kind of blitz of, of official um, advice and instruction. And it's all kind of TFL, uh, mind the gap wear your mask and it's it's quite full on after a while and you keep thinking yeah yeah i've seen i've seen uh, mind the gap now about 50 times in this journey I, I feel i now grasp it so so that was different is it a bit like v for vendetta where all the posters are just saying be pure be vigilant yeah yeah <laughs> behave and so yeah, on yeah um last week for the bunker daily you interviewed david martin of the ms trust about the impact of covid19 on ms sufferers uh it's the first time you've spoken about your own experiences what was the response from listeners it was uh, lovely, actually, because it is something that I've just been very, very quiet about for all kinds of reasons for a number of years. And so it was good to hear a few people saying, I'm glad that somebody has been talking about it. Nobody seems to have been representing people like us in the media at all. And I should add that I have not been shielding. So I was mostly talking about that impact, which was very different from my own experience. But nonetheless, and there were a couple of people, you know, who'd been recently diagnosed and uh, reached out a bit and that was good too because it was it's really the worst time when you're diagnosed with MS I mean it's it just kind of it's 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 awful I thought my life was over so that was that was um quite quite uh, good to see as well cool uh so people listen to that bunker daily it's on the feed Naomi Smith is chief exec of best for Britain hi Naomi hello on Monday the government confirmed that face masks will become compulsory in shops on the 24th of July with a 100 pound fine for anyone without one um is it too late or are there sound medical reasons for only now making them mandatory? Well, there are, uh, but that's, of course, not why the government is making them mandatory. Um, they've seen all the, the polling about people being fearful of going back into shops, terrified that people aren't going to start spending again. So this measure uh, is really about giving people the confidence to go back in. But as far as I understand it, shop workers are not required to wear them. Um, and let me tell you, after one sneezed all over a bit of produce <laughs> that I was buying, um, as they scanned it at the weekend, it would give me a lot more confidence if everybody in the shop, including the staff, had to wear them too, as horrible as I completely understand that would be for a long shift. But yeah, pl- plenty of sound research um, behind it, and you know, it proves that it does massively reduce the spread, but I think we should all wear them on shop in shops. I mean, because part of the reasons when people are saying, oh, well, why not earlier? But of course, during the, the, the main lockdown, Lockdown, it wasn't really uh, as important. It is really something that you introduce sooner when you're trying to get people back out there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, and shop workers are overrepresented in the death statistics as well. Um, you know, really quite worryingly, mm. particularly male um, uh, shop assistants. So yeah, people should wear them. Uh, Michael Gove was firmly against it just a day before the rule was announced. Do you think he was out of the loop or was he sort of posturing for the libertarian Wally crew? (laughs) 
<laughs> well, if I had to guess, it's probably down to one of two, if if not both things. Um, you know, the public advice given by HMG advisors early on was to not wear them. Um, and that's advice that his own department went very hard on, uh, as far as I can remember. So I think legislating a U-turn wouldn't be a particularly good look for him over other ministers who maybe hadn't really expressed a view on it previously. And also, it's very possible that actually the government didn't have plans to bring them in and that Johnson was reacting to the noise, you know, unilaterally. Mm. And so they sort of all bounced into it. But that is speculation. I don't have any insider intel on that front. Ian Dunt is editor of politics.co.uk back in Romania after we relaxed our quarantine rules. Hi, Ian. Welcome back. <laughs> Thank you very much. We missed you. Oh, thanks. Um, Douglas Carswell says, no more shops for me. And so Desmond Swain will not trolley to mask, although he's famously relaxed about blackface. Um, <laughs> Brendan O'Neill has written his article again. Uh, <laughs> Alison Pearson too. Um, they don't. I don't think that they're going to get the mask culture war. You know, the American style one that they they want. What What do you think? Do you think that the you know that large sections of the public are going to kind of um, rally around this? You know, don't muzzle our ancient freedoms. Flag, um, or or is this just a sort of bit of silliness that, that that will be forgotten next week? Yeah, no, I don't think they're going to get anywhere because public opinion. I mean, the last thing I thought saw was sixty percent of people thought that making masks mandatory supported it, um, and that, of course, is the reason that the government, I presume, is doing it in the first place. Like, I don't think Boris Johnson would have done this if he hadn't, you know, got good evidence that there was a lot of sort of polling support for it. So they're on a bit of a they're on a bit of a hiding to nothing. I can't. I mean, I've spent most of the time just, it's not really a political thing. It's just the psychology, just kind of just just looking at them, thinking what is actually going on in those jangled wires in your head right now? And is it, I mean, part of me just sort of, you know, Bolsonaro in Brazil, right? It was constantly, uh, the sort of nationalist leader of Brazil, was constantly sort of talking about masks as this effeminate sort of thing that a real man wouldn't do until, you know, he caught coronavirus and started fucking wearing one. Um, and you would constantly label them with sort of homophobic slurs. And I kind of think there's, you can't get, you can't quite get past that bit. There's definitely a sort of macho thing to it, which I think is probably a bit similar to condoms and a bit similar to seatbelts and just a bit of a, you know, real men. Why wow, fucking, I show them my face and off we go. Have you seen the, the amazing Durex advert that they've just put out? They said going out and they put a picture of a mask and staying in picture of a condom and protect <laughs> you and your loved ones. It's very, very good bit of marketing. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, that's pretty fantastic. But I, I, but I do like the way that these, these people whose kind of brand, I suppose, is speaking for the silent majority, essentially are now representing sort of uh, psychologically complicated fringe cranks. Yeah. So this well, is not what the silent majority wants at all. Yeah, and I kind of, I just wish that we had some decent libertarians. Because, like, I mean, libert- I'm not a libertarian. I don't agree with libertarianism. I think it's basically like a miscalculation of comparative rights. But at least it's consistent. So, you know, when you, in the, in the good old days, when you had someone like Milton Friedman, right, who was a, a fucking lunatic. Like, I mean, Milton Friedman used to think that you shouldn't have licensing for doctors, right? Because the free market would decide, you know, it's, it's, you know your granny dies, so you don't go to that doctor anymore. Let the market decide. But he was fucking consistent, right? Like, he believed in the legalization of all drugs. Like, he was an actual libertarian. These guys, if you said to them, legalization of all drugs, if you say to them, I'll tell you what, mate, you know, the Home Office hasn't been so fantastic with individual rights and does tend to put people in, incarcerate them in detention centers, despite having committed no crime, couldn't give a fuck. 
asked them to put on a mask to go get the milk. And apparently it's like the greatest infringement on their liberty of all time. So I kind of, at the very least, if they're going to be such weirdos about this, they could at least just show us a little bit of fucking consistency. This week, Ready Steady Gove, after the huge success of the government's last two Brexit information campaigns, they're rolling out another one to prepare Britain for the end of the transition. The tagline is, let's get going, because apparently we haven't even started yet. Plus, monarchy in the UK, after Prince Harry's exit, Prince Andrew's little local difficulties and the recent silence of the Queen, are the royals in trouble? And if so, what should replace Britain's longest running soap opera? First, are you ready to check, change, go? Check your promises before the referendum, then change your mind and go on as if nothing happened. The government has launched its latest, absolutely definitely final Brexit advertising campaign aimed at businesses and British citizens living in the EU. It's got another three-word tagline, let's get going, and a similar traffic light motif to the government's COVID-19 scale. Ian, uh, what is your expert take on this exciting new campaign? Oh, my expert take is that it's a fucking load of horseshit. Um, and, you know, anyone could surely come up with this by themselves. Like, the, the businesses that are not preparing right now, of which, I mean, according to sort of the latest survey, it's three quarters of business leaders are not not preparing because they're unaware that something is going on. They're not preparing because they have two things to be dealing with. The first one is coronavirus, which is rather demanding an awful lot of businesses at the moment. And the second one is the fact that they don't know what the outcome is going to be. Until they do have some idea of what the outcome is going to be in just a few months. And it's very hard for them to know what it is to do. Now, they're a bit fucked either way, right? Because even the kind of deal that the government wants um, isn't that different from no deal for many businesses. Like, So let's say you get a deal and there's no tariffs. Fine, you have to pay tariffs. But you still need to come up with all the customs paperwork. You still need to be able to show regulatory compliance. Um, and if and then if there is a deal, you're also going to have to do rules of origin um, requirements. So the it's not a huge gap between them, but you don't know which of the two shitty outcomes you're going to get. And I don't think that, you know, like a campaign talking about let's get going or whatever fucking crock of shit it is that they've come up with is necessarily going to change that. And if you had the government's money to spend on Brexit advertising, uh, how would you do it? Is there, is there a, is there, given what you've said, is there a message that's going to galvanise people or clue people up more than it has? You have asked me. You've asked me a question. I think that's beyond my imaginative capacity to, to process. I don't know how I would even. I mean, I can't because you just your first thing you do is just don't do this to them in the first place. Like, don't ask them to deal with this at the same time as as COVID. What about I, suck it up? <laughs> would that be a good slogan? <laughs> no, I mean you could go back to classic Boris Johnson. Could you be like, this is how you got fucked. This is this this is how business. Yeah, works. I said. Yeah, exactly. I said I'd fuck business. Now I'm fucking you. Yeah. <laughs> Boris Johnson delivering on his promises. <laughs> <laughs> um, Naomi, the Times reported that businesses trading between the UK and the EU will have to pay additional costs of up to thirteen billion pounds, according to some estimates. Seven, a mere seven, at the lowest end of the estimate, and fill in approximately four hundred extra customs declarations in 2021. Um, how fast is Margaret Thatcher rotating in her grave right now? <laughs> yeah, um, that lady is sure turning now. Um, yeah, uh, look, communication on how the UK's borders will operate in the next year is, of course, extremely late. Um, and I think just a timely reminder of the absolute cascade of red tape and new systems uh, which businesses are going to have to negotiate, as, as Ian um, kind of laid out. And, and the lorry park itself is this physical embodiment of the barrier we've created ourselves in selling goods to Europe 
Uh, and there's less than six months to go. You know, firms having to rush through vital changes, find themselves unable to trade in their largest market. Um, and all the while, you know, many suffering severe cash flow problems because of the corona recession. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure she is turning in her grave. And this week, Kent Council was informed out of the blue that 27 acres of land had been purchased to act as a customs clearance centre, or as local MP Damien Green called it, a lorry park. <laughs> um, does, does this look exciting to potential trading partners? No, of course not. Uh, you know, the whole it's the whole point of Brexit, right? That 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 it was just the offer was contradictory. Um, taking back control by conquering over the Garden of England. I mean, it's just nonsense. And you know, I think that the money that they they talked up um, that sort of seven hundred and five million of extra taxpayers' money that's going to be needed to cough up for this much less efficient system isn't a one off. Right, because all of these new, you know, customs staff, all those new salaries, uh, pension contributions—it's not a one-off payment. Um, and the other point I think I'd like to make on this is that you know we've we've heard a lot about you know some of the free ports uh, in the last couple of days. We've obviously heard a lot about this lorry park in Kent, but you know what about the other major ports? What about Holyhead? What about Stranra? What about Larne? Um, it's not clear at all at this point. Uh, you know what's being done to help them, what what they're going to need to do. Uh, it's it's all still very very messy. And Gove promises that we'll have the world's most secure borders on January the first next year. It's probably, probably news to North Korea. Um, <laughs> what, what I mean, what what does he mean? Like, why would you why would you brag about most secure as as if that's like the best thing to aspire to? And 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 how is that remotely true when police states exist? Right, exactly. It's the world beating this, world beating that. It's just one long willy waving competition from this cabinet, and it's just getting really, really, really tedious now. Um, and it reminds me of that scene in Willy Wonka. Um, where the rag and bone man like says to Charlie, who's like staring at the chocolate factory in awe, he says, up the airy mountain, down the rushy glen, we dare not go a hunting for fear of little men. You see, nobody ever goes in and nobody ever comes out. And that's that's what we're going to be like. We'll be stuck on this Brexit fantasy island with little men, no one allowed to leave or enter. It's just, it's just honestly, it's hideous. I mean, that was quite a psychedelic film anyway. And I just sort of feel like no amount of mushrooms are going to compare with the reality we've got going on now. And look, this is a government that kept saying that the border would be light touch. That was their phrase, a light touch border. And they've boasted throughout about the role of tech you know, all the max fact stuff. And now it's all, you know, we've got the tech to keep it all. Well, look, we know how tech works out for these guys, for God's sake. Uh, it doesn't. And they're spending twice as much on the, the physical port and inland infrastructure as they are on the systems and staffing. And so, you know, that should alarm us all because they can't get tech projects right when they do throw a hell of a lot of cash at them. And they ain't throwing a hell of, of a lot of the cash that's been ring fenced for this to the, the software. It's, it's all on the sort of compulsory purchase of the land and, and the physical kit. Yeah, because there's light touch border, also most secure border in the world. There's, uh, let's leave the EU to cut red tape, also much more red tape. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, 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 the secure stuff is one of those efforts that you see, you see it with Trump as well of not, I mean, in our case, it's not quite racializing trade issues, but it's certainly immigrationizing them. So you're dealing in that kind of language where for most members of the public, what they'll take from that is, you know, oh, there'll, there'll be no more terrorists coming across the border. You know, we're controlling our borders in that way, even though it doesn't really have anything to do with that. And of course, if you were to look at what they're actually doing with goods, as you just said, I mean, they're not really doing any checks, not really at all, apart from on some goods for the first six months of next year. So whatever the most secure border in the world is, 
presumably it does actually have customs declarations, which we will not be having for the first few months. Rightly, that happens. But nevertheless, that doesn't seem to satisfy the wording that he's used. I believe the compromise is that we will still have terrorists, but they'll have to pay more to get in. (laughs) (laughs) And they'll have to queue politely in Kent before they that. Just to to test if they're really dedicated. (laughs) Some of them just halfway down a very long queue going, oh, fuck, fuck jihad. (laughs) I'm not doing this. I'm not wearing a mask. (laughs) Ros, Simon Jenkins in The Guardian thinks Rishi Sunak is the only cabinet member who can stop Johnson from enacting these trade plans. Uh, But Sunak is still a Brexiter who supported Boris for the leadership. So does he actually want to is he going to find the sort of political uh, will you know is the kind of the 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 chancellor part of him uh, going to overcome the uh, loyal cabinet member part of him uh, no i don't think so in the near future because sunak's in a very good place at the moment uh, he's got brilliant pr at the moment he's got a new comms chief who used to work for bbc and itn and he's doing all these great things on social media and everyone loves him even people like simon jenkins and i, I think it's somewhat wishful thinking to imagine that he's going to change the course i mean Sunak is basically waiting for if and when the Conservative Party get tired of Boris Johnson and turn to a great new hope. And then we will see what he can achieve with that mandate. But until then, he has the luxury of being able to um, spread a lot of money around because it's absolutely necessary to prop up the economy. And Johnson Sunak are promising 10 new free ports, uh, places where normal rules on tariffs and taxation don't apply. Can you explain how they work and what happens to the uh, all the other ports in the country uh, that aren't covered by those 10? Well, free ports are actually quite interesting. There are, there are some already, but they, uh, in fact, the EU already has 80 of them um, overall. But what they fundamentally do is you, you designate a, an airport or a seaport and you create a zone around it. And you say that within that zone, you can do stuff to uh, things that are coming into imports and you can do a bit of manufacturing and adding value. And then you can export them again without paying tariffs and things. So that has a certain appeal, basically, in, in a world where you would otherwise be having to apply lots of tariffs. But there are plenty of problems with, with free ports. I mean, they, they one of the problems is they can just divert existing economic activity into the free port. And basically, you lose tax revenue because people aren't paying tariffs as well. That's another downside. And in fact, the EU recommended that they should be abolished last year in a report because they were basically being used as places for uh, tax evasion and money laundering. You know, you can bring in a big, uh, bring in some painting and you can do it quite secretly. And it's 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 uh, an opportunity to get round the rules because they're so different there. In terms of what happens to the other ports, I mean, that basically means that the, the other ports can then do the normal job of importing and exporting, which a port would normally do and hopefully will continue to do post-Brexit. But as Naomi was saying earlier, those all are going to need a hell of a lot of extra infrastructure in order to do that. And our friends on the Tory right are now saying we should withdraw from the withdrawal agreement, blaming the Remainers who consistently opposed it rather than the Brexiters who passed it. Um, (laughs) Apart apart from trying to to scramble our brains, uh, what, what are they trying to achieve? Uh, it's difficult, really. I mean, I, I, they didn't really understand it when it when it came <laughs> because it, it, have they forgotten that they 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 voted for it? 
Um, yeah, they have, because they were just voting for Johnson, basically, at the time. They weren't actually, you've got to understand, they weren't actually voting for the agreement. Their vote was entirely vested in what Johnson needs to do to win the next election. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was that was what they were doing. So they didn't understand it very well. In particular, they didn't understand the implications for Northern Ireland. And I think that has come as quite a shock to some of them uh, over the last few months. If only someone had mentioned Northern Ireland before and said... <laughs> Keep, keep keep an eye out for that. Because, um, Ian, you pointed out one of these, right, I can't remember who it was, but they're just going, ultimately, Remainers must take responsibility for this agreement. Yeah, John, John Longworth. Yeah. Which is quite astonishing chutzpah. It's, no, it's fucking incredible. Like if, if you, that, that article's on Politico, and I would urge anyone to to have a read. It's like, it's like watching the film Brazil on acid. Like, you're just, you're just reading, just being like, fucking, what the fuck are you talking about? like you are off the scale and and he says well i mean by the way in a sentence with one of the finest mixed metaphors of all time he's like remainers have shackled us to this poison pill like, come on man work harder there's elementary shit right here and then if you try and swallow the poison pill you yeah, also end up swallowing your own hand <laughs> it doesn't work and I wonder if there was an editor because Politico is very well edited, right? So I wonder if there's someone there who was just like, "Do I do I send this back to him and point this out, or do I just let it go?" <laughs> um, and then and uh, and the, shack, the, the the shackled pill that we have poisoned to the poison pill that we're shackled to is of course the, the fucking withdrawal agreement, which apparently is our fault, even though we did say don't fucking sign that thing because it looks like a piece of shit. They've now realised it's a piece of shit, and of course it was our fault all along. That then. I mean, by the way, I really do stress, read the article. It, it is a parade of nonsense like you have never seen in your fucking life. And, but then the cherry on top comes when David Davis, of all people, pops up on fucking Twitter and goes, oh, this all seems perfectly reasonable. You're like, what the fuck? You fucking... It is beyond comprehension to me, but I would advise it, you know, for a good, cheery, fun afternoon in, in the world of make-believe. Go, go check it out. No, I mean, finally, the British Retail Consortium reported that imported cheddar cheese have got 57% in the event of no deal. Oranges would cost at least 12% more. Beef, not a problem for you, would go up 48%. Um, you kind of keep an eye on, on, on the polls. Um, how squishy is support for, for Brexit in this stage? And could it be, I mean, obviously, you know, it is happening, but could yeah. support be quite swiftly eroded when people are hit in the pocket, yeah, yeah. which will make a big yeah, difference yeah. to Johnson anyway? Look, Brexit support has always been squishy once you got to any kind of detail about it. Um, And that's, you know, we've said this before, that the Leave coalition was cobbled together by its ability to not be specific about anything and so that they could draw in the whole wide range of Leavers from, you know, those supporting a Norway-style thing right through to the the Brexit ultras wanting no deal at all. Um, and when you when you ask the public specifics on things and when you ask Leave voters the specifics on things, very, very rapidly, no, they, they don't like the sound of it. But you know, when you ask them that one headline question after 40 years of you know, the Murdoch press pouring bile about the EU down their throats, of course, they, they do vote to leave. Our latest ra- round of MRP polling of Best of Britain showed that 68% of voters in the blue wall 
formerly the Red Wall, those totemic leave seats uh, across the north of the country, expect the cost of daily essentials to rise in the event of no deal. So they, they know this is coming if we don't get a deal. Um, and, and the import tariffs on the most basic of foods is going to push people into or further into food poverty. We're talking, you know, 20% import tariffs on things like dried pasta, tin tuna, tin tomatoes, you know, the very sorts of uh, foods that you might expect to find in an emergency parcel at, at food banks. Mm. Um, and, and what's the point of having that free food uh, if you're then facing a 20% import tariff on it? You know, it's, it, 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 it's criminal uh, how much this, this could severely hurt um, lower income families next year. Next, the monarchy are having another Annis Rebellis. Prince Harry has fled the House of Windsor to enjoy the fabled palaces of Vancouver with Meghan. If Prince Andrew could sweat, which we know he cannot, he might be sweating. <laughs> he might be sweating buckets over the arrest of Jeffrey Epstein's sidekick, Ghislaine Maxwell. Ross, did the prorogation debacle kick away you know, one of the popular defences of the monarchy? It's a backstop in case of constitutional emergency because it was in the Queen's power to say no, uh, but she let Johnson have his way. And, and, that, and that was a kind of test of the kind that doesn't normally come up. Yeah, I mean, it was exposed as meaningless, that that supposed backstop. But it made perfect sense because the Queen has no democratic legitimacy. So it would have been wrong for her to step in and stop the pro- uh, the prorogation, because what authority does she have to do it from a democratic point of view? And when the head of state is unelected, when their role is purely ceremonial in effect, that's what happens. So you have to think about what being head of state should mean. And to my mind, it should mean a counterbalance uh, between the power of the executive and the power of parliament and clearly, at the moment, it doesn't. And um, what do you think that framing British history as royal history, which is obviously uh, what we all remember from schools, has done to our sort of understanding of of the country's history, the people who who drive it? Has it given us perhaps like a, a warped sense of the country? Yeah, I think it does. I think it creates a false sense of continuity, which history is not really about. History is about change and what shakes things up and what changes things. And instead, we always get the sense that there is this wonderful array and and, and the uninterrupted, which of course is not true, but an uninterrupted line of royalty that has held our country together. And I think that's the wrong way to think about history. It's the wrong way to think about history because it's seeing it through the prism of aristocratic personalities basically and so you think about say Henry VIII and you think oh wives uh, you know and maybe you know a bit about Cromwell as well of course it's far more interesting than Henry VIII because ultimately he um, had far more influence on what happened in the world during King Henry VIII's reign than Henry VIII himself did but we don't see that we think about Henry VIII and his wives and we don't think about people who actually shook things up and who actually changed things despite where they came from. And instead, we focus on this continuity. And I mean, Helen, Helen Lewis, actually, of course, uh, on the bunker, makes, makes this point very interestingly in Difficult Women, which I've just been reading. Um, she points out that Queen Victoria was very anti-women's rights. I mean, seriously anti-women's rights. She 
loathed any kind of suffragette activity, any any kind of activity or any uh, suggestion that women, for example, should be able to qualify as doctors. She was extremely anti. And she did that despite her own position and role as queen and as empress of an empire. And that points that points out to me, I think, the way that you have this illusion that monarchs change things, and in fact they don't. Usually it's far more interesting people who change things, and we forget that. And we even, you know, the Civil War is virtually written out of British history when we think about how we study it in schools, because it doesn't fit, because it's this interregnum when there were was no functioning monarchy. Ian, um, you're fairly pro-monarchy against elected heads of state. Why are you such a craven lickspittle? <laughs> I had a very difficult childhood. You know, it was, it was hard in school. <laughs> this is, I mean, this is basically like my least popular opinion with, with anyone I socialise with. And I've had many like evenings in the park. As soon as you say, I'm all right with the monarchy, actually. Anyone in good, wholesome metropolitan north london drinking den will look at you and go like what the fuck what the fuck went wrong um but i don't really i mean you find yourself in a very weird sort of position when you're you're my thing because i i rather like the constitution effect of having someone who wasn't elected it's specifically the fact that they're not elected that matters to me i don't really care how they get the position as long as they're not elected. I mean, if they've picked like the fucking, the tallest, you know, the tallest person or the person who does the hurdles fastest, that would be fine by me as well. But seeing as we've got the hereditary thing, then that's fine. We'll stick with that. What really matters to me is that it is not democratic. The moment that it is, the moment that the head of state position is democratic, you get into the situation where some people didn't vote for them. And as soon as some people didn't vote for them, there is now like a division in the space that should be really this neutral communal space that as many of us as possible can associate ourselves with. Now that, I think that mattered a lot. Anyway, let's say like, you know, in the early noughties, you know, I I wouldn't have wanted like a Tory or a Labour head of state. Um, But now, now it matters to me kind of more than ever, because now you just feel like, that would be the ultimate culture war battleground. The person who's elected head of state. I mean, right now, I mean, fucking look at it. You know, if the queen wears a blue hat, you know, half the Remainers I knew were like, that's it. She's sending us a secret signal that she's, <laughs> she's against Brexit. We're clamoring to apply the culture war there. I mean, we, we fucking put it on masks. We put it on stamps. We put it on, co- you know, we'll put the culture war wherever we can. The ultimate space would be there. And I just think right now, more than ever, you get that sense of, just the benefits that we have by that being a space that actually really resists very effectively indeed getting sucked into getting sucked into the culture. Um, Naomi, can you please explain your treasonous hatred of the Queen? God love her. <laughs> Do you see how even-handed I'm being? <laughs> have, have any of you ever met her? No, fuck. No, okay, I have. Uh, but I don't hate her um, at all. Uh, but we do need to establish why the monarchy... Naomi, wait, that- you, can't, you can't move on from that. <laughs> yeah. You have to tell us. What, I mean, what was it, in Soho one night? Like, what, <laughs> <laughs> the Grouch show, uh, late uh, doors. A family member was being knighted, and oh. I was sat mm. right at the front. And people call you the elite. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case they're listening and, and thinking, the Privy Councillor thinking of putting me forward... 
uh, for any public honour. I, I would turn it down. Just, just <laughs> let's get that on record. Um, but look, of course, I don't. Ian's, think Ian's open to all offers. Well, yeah. I, can I just? I mean, I would turn it down, but only because it's the cool thing to do, right? All the cool people turn it down. I mean, in terms of principles, you know. Yeah. Well, look. Let, let's just get back to principles because the the. the the phrase that Ian used that I disagree with is um, a, a neutral communal space. Okay, mm-hmm. we need to establish why the monarchy is bad for liberalism and progressivism. And the real issue, if we abandon the narrative of the runners and riders, which of course is juicy gossip, um, is to establish the principles about why the monarchy is a harmful institution for those who want a more equal society. I think it's an of course, an unhealthy institution for any royal family member to to be a part of and have to grow up in. And arguably, Brenda is a stronger monarch because she didn't grow up expecting to be queen. Remember, uh, it's only because of her uncle's abdication. So perhaps you know that that's why she is quite mm. broadly appealing in the country. But who the I- individuals are and how they grow up really is a, is a side point in all of this debate. I mean, well, I get my only my counter was this basically is, it, and I get it like the hereditary thing. It, it looks fucked, and and no, you know, if you're an alien and you just decided, well, we're going to make a new civilization from scratch here, you obviously wouldn't come up with this because it's mad. It's completely mad. Um, but I don't. Uh, you haven't seen enough sci-fi, man. They love. <laughs> yeah, I'd love. To, I'd like to see some royalists. There's sci-fi. a lot of alien monarchs. <laughs> I get, this is my thing is that when I, when you go around the world, I don't feel that it's the case that countries with hereditary monarchies are more unequal, really. Like, I mean, I think you, I, I look at when I go to the US, that feels, I mean, A, it is literally more unequal than here, but also more perniciously unequal because it doesn't even have the language, partly because of its myth about the American dream, to describe the inequality that it's seeing, the class system that it's seeing. But like if I go, when, when I go to like Guatemala, it's not like, I mean, Guatemala doesn't have a hereditary monarchy, right? But that place fucking makes Britain look like a socialist paradise, right? And so I just don't, it, it, obviously symbolically that's true, but it doesn't seem to me like it does have like a big effect on the way that people think in the population. Because well, I wanted to ask you, Naomi, about that. Um, yeah. Do you think the monarchy you know, has the effect of sort of, it's, it's partly responsible for making the Tories feel like the natural party of government because they're pressing these similar buttons of hierarchy and tradition and sort of national identity. Do you think it sort of yeah. skews yeah. The, the democratic playing field? It, it does. It does completely. Look, we, we have a society in Britain that is obsessed by the royal family. We fetishise the royals. And in so doing, we are fetishising deference, class, privilege and unearned wealth. And the liberal struggle is historically about checking the power of the few and not endorsing it. And I'm afraid they do still wield soft power because if you ingrain hereditary privilege, you undermine a more equal society. And the existence of the monarchy helps conservatism and it undermines all of us that are trying to seek fairness. It upholds hierarchy privilege as being British, as being this sort of quintessentially British thing as part of our national identity. And they are constantly part of our public debate. They're always on the front pages of broadsheets and tabloids alike. And people like Ian, who are you know progressive monarchists, I think do need to come to terms with the impact that the monarchy has on British politics over the long term. So what would uh, a British republic look like? I mean, is do you see... Ian's pointing out the kind of problem of having another, uh, you know, of having an elected head of state. Yeah. yeah. Look, it's a perfectly valid question to ask. There are, but what would you replace it with? Sort of trying to gotcha question. But it is usually asked by conservatives who are ideologically driven to conserve 
entrenched privilege. But what should replace it? Look, it, it doesn't have to be decided by us. And we've talked about this on the on the show so many times, but we are so overdue constitutional reform and we need a, a national constitutional convention. Um, and, and once you start pulling up one thread, be it unelected peers or unfair voting systems or the Barnett formula, it exposes all of these entrenched interests. And, and frankly, you know, it's not entirely, but often is the worst kinds of conservatives that are most defensive of it. So look, we can abolish the monarchy through that mechanism uh, if we want, but if we can't, we can and still need to reduce the hereditary privileges. So it doesn't have to be all or nothing. There are other monarchies, for example, Holland, where the royal family has a much smaller role in public life. And the average de Jong, or whatever the most popular surname is in uh, in the Netherlands is, is nowhere near as obsessed by their royals as we are by ours. And if we do abolish it, then we can look at examples like Ireland, where the elected president has a much more ceremonial role. Um, and, and you know, uh, Ian was talking about Guatemala and uh, you know, other places around the world. I mean, unlike Australia, where the Republicans only narrowly lost a referendum a couple of decades ago, Canada is really interesting. And I know I always use Canada as my example when it comes to talking <laughs> about amazing approaches to immigrants and immigration. But it's a country that doesn't have a groundswell of support for republicanism. But under Trudeau, they've been constantly reinforcing this point about inclusive civic nationalism. And they don't have hereditary peers, right? They don't have, uh, you know, that that, that sort of hereditary upper house uh, element. And they're culturally similar to us. They have a Westminster style political system. And for them, the Queen is just much more like a ceremonial figurehead. So I think, any kind of discussion at a constitutional convention needs, needs to talk about how Canada has a very different culture towards it than we do. When we talk about the ceremonial role of the monarchy and how it could continue, uh, even if the constitutional role that it has were taken away. I mean, that all sounds very, very, very sensible. But we've had that idea in place for a long time. I mean, the 19th century Walter Badgett basically said the monarchy is what he thought of as a dignified side of government and it does the pomp and the ceremony and government uh, is the efficient side. But why do we actually need the pomp and ceremony? Why do we need the spectacle? Is that really something that is so important to us? And if so, what does that say about us and our ability to think about the world, about the government governing system in which we live. But, but, but is that unique to us? I mean, if you look at sort of Russia, they love a, a kind of rocket launcher parade. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? This is a country that, fam- that famously not keen on monarchy I would, um, I would and it replaced it with other pageantry. Yeah, I would submit, though, that that is not actually progress to have done that. Um, (laughs) I'm not saying that rocket launches and republicanism go hand in hand. But I think it's it's patronising to the general public to say that you have to do that. I mean, it's saying, no, you can't just deal with thinking about politics and thinking about government. You need all this, this ceremony, too. Otherwise, you won't be able to buy into it and you won't be able to to support the state as a whole. And I think that's an incredibly patronising mindset. But do you think that, that, that because the monarchy is generally perceived as sort of quite powerless and therefore harmless, is that most people, if they look back at the top priorities, what will make a difference to your life? You know, apart from kind of, uh, you know, the real sort of hardcore uh, Republicans, very few people would put that in their top 10, top 20, whatever. So it's part of the problem, not that there is necessarily this huge passionate defense of the monarchy, but that that most people just don't care that much. 
Well, that is a problem in a sense, but I think that if you you have to start small, and you and sometimes reform comes from unexpected places, and I hope that this could be one of the places that it could start with. Because by chipping away at things like hereditary privilege, which is what the monarchy is fundamentally based on, we can change our sense of what we can achieve as a country and what we're capable of, what we can what we can do. And we can perhaps move away from some of the ideas about ourselves that hold us back. And we're all familiar with those. And because we've, in the last few years in particular, post-EU referendum, we've seen so many of them and so many of them evoked in such fatuous, idiotic ways. And I would like to think that if we took the step away from monarchy, we could begin that process of tearing ourselves away from this comfort blanket. I wanted to wrap up by just asking how strong it was as an institution anyway. So first, Ian, do you think that the Queen... Um, because she is personally very popular, it's sort of keeping its legitimacy afloat. And actually, this debate is going to be very different um, when, as we assume, uh, Charles takes over, or even William. Um, you know, the, the, the whole debate changes once you don't have this individual on the throne. No, I don't. No, I, I think, I mean, I, th- I think it's almost baffling having this, this this debate, to be honest, in that I don't think there's any real crisis of the monarchy right now. Um, and I don't think... Don't undermine be... the premise of the segment, Ian. That is, <laughs> that is the first rule of podcasting. <laughs> I'm getting rusty, man. I've been away for a while. We um, live in a state of perpetual crisis. <laughs> um, I mean, I, you know, she's incredibly popular for really, really good reason. Um when she dies um, and Charles takes over, I mean, at the moment, he doesn't have a lot of support. I think it's 3% support for him. Um, I think she's on something like 46% or something. It's been a while she's on she's on that. Um, I, it'll be a moment of profound national trauma, generational national trauma, um, which I think will sort of belie actually how important this is to an awful lot of people. To, 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 I mean, when you look at the broadening, I mean, across young and old, City and countryside, uh, you know, right wing, left, leave, remain. I mean, across all the segments, intensely popular. And most of that feeling of sadness will transfer towards support for him. I also, by the way, think that despite all of the, the soap opera stuff that we put around it, which is wrapped up with Diana and things like that, he actually represents a, a kind of a specifically Englishness, this kind of distant melancholy and yearning for the past that I think a lot of people in this country are actually quite sort of very comfortable with and, and would associate with. And when they see a bit more of it with the trappings around it, I suspect that they'll, they'll be quite supportive. I love the idea of running on a platform of distant melancholy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm voting for him. Yeah, no, he's good. I like the distant melancholy. I like the look in his eyes. Um, Naomi, do you think the fate of the monarchy depends on on another major change? Is whether the union stays together? That if you start, you know, if you lose Scotland or there's yeah. more agitation, then 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 that undermines the legitimacy. 
I, I think that's right. But I mean, it, I'll, I'll, again, I'll challenge Ian on something he said about you know how how rightly popular she is and all the rest of it. The royals are a manufactured institution, right? They are not popular by accident. Enormous effort goes into maintaining this institution, and we are up against powerful and entrenched interests. But you know, I've campaigned for the underdog almost my entire bloody life, so it doesn't deter me. I mean, I want to get rid of state-funded faith schools for many of the same reasons that I think we need to abolish the monarchy but I accept that both those things are unlikely to happen it doesn't mean that we need to give up the case and sometimes we have evolution not revolution and and Ros said you know sometimes change comes from unexpected corners but I'm a reformist and we desperately need major constitutional reform that isn't unfamiliar to Romaniacs after all of the ridiculousness that we had with prorogation of parliament last year and we need a, a kind of citizens jury constitutional convention built on consensus and and consent. And I think, therefore, we could at least move towards limiting uh, some of the powers of the the Crown and and clarifying them. Um, You know, the civil list should probably be reduced even even further and things like that. Um, They're figureheads who actually wield power. And can't we just please make them ceremonial figureheads if we can't agree on abolition? Now it's time for To the Barricades, where we propose some causes you can throw your energies into. Ian Dunt, uh, you're, you're back, back, back. What's your suggestion? <laughs> Thank you, Dorian Linsky. I will, I will now discuss. <laughs> I don't know why I called you. There's, like, there's another Ian there. <laughs> Ian, Mc, Ian McCaskill. Great. Yes. No, thank you. Thank you for distinguishing me. Um, yeah, I, look, I mean, I'm pretty uh, fucking down this week because of what happened in Poland. Um, Poland, the Polish elections were a fucking disaster and they were probably like a more sort of pulverizing disaster on the basis that for a while there, there was a glimmer of hope that it might not turn out this way. But it has. And um, the nationalists have won again, this time in the form of law and justice, who secured another term um, against a centrist candidate, got close, didn't make it. Uh, it's a really fucking, it was a really, really fucking pernicious campaign, um, including, you know, saying LGBT are not people, they're an ideology, profoundly homophobic campaign, um, very Germanophobic campaign, um, and an anti-Semitic campaign, just absolute fucking poison being churned out for months on end, and it got vindicated. Now that they're secured in power, there'll be less I suspect, you don't know, because very often once they get the smell, they'll just keep on going for it. But I think there'll be less of that and the return to the things that they really want to do, which is to follow the Hungarian model of destroying the domestic institutions. There's the thing that, you know, when we see the different kind of nationalisms, Trump and Brexit and Orban, whatever, they, they look very different. I mean, there's no point, you know, us saying Boris Johnson's as bad as Orban. Fucking, of course he isn't. But they all attack the domestic institutions, the parliaments, the courts, the press. So Orban did by setting up a shadow um, institutional structure of NGOs, of courts, of press, and then using them to undermine and then eventually nearly eradicate the existing structure. And that is exactly what is happening in Poland under law and justice. Um, it's BBC, the TVP, um, sort of flawed public television, but but you know valuable, is now basically just a sort of regime-controlled state television. It's basically Fox News. And it had some of the stuff it was churning out over the election was just fucking despicable. It now plans on pursuing what it calls the, pol- the polonization of the media, um, which is essentially trying to get rid of foreign ownership, where that has been able to stand up to their attempts to control uh, rather more sternly. Um, it will also continue its attack on the courts, the, the attack on the courts has already done it with the Supreme Court. Will continue. I mean, the, essentially, the tactic is to purge, to pack, and to politicise them. 
I kind of feel, I mean, I can't, you know, four more years of this for Poland. And it's, I think it's perfectly reasonable to say that like Hungary, it wouldn't be a, a functioning liberal democracy or with both emphasizes, because, you know, these governments are very happy to call themselves illiberal. They're not. They, it's true. They destroy liberalism. They, they call themselves illiberal democracies. But in fact, the, the second part is a fucking lie as well, because they're not democracies. They would always make sure that they rig the vote, that they rig the information that people get, that they rig the advertising, that they rig any part of the system that they can to make sure that they win. And it's quite hard to have faith in what happens in the next election. Now, you can, at this moment right now, to be a gay person in Poland is going to be fucking scary. Okay? There's an organization called KPH, the Campaign Against Homophobia, um, in Poland. You can donate to them. You can support them in any way that you can. I would urge you to do that. They deserve the help. Um, there's several organizations that are supporting journalists for the kind of attacks that they're going to face over the next few years. Um, International Federation of Journalists, the Association of European Journalists, the Committee to Protect Journalists, and I think most importantly, or at least the organization that I'm always sort of uh, most impressed by is Reporters Without Borders. I think I'll, I'll send these on to the team and we'll, we'll hopefully put them out on Twitter. But at the moment, it's fucking bleak in Poland. And if you can support any of those organizations, especially KPH and Reporters Without Borders, that, that would be a pretty good thing to do with your time and your money. If you're not listening to our sibling podcast, The Bunker, yet, this would be a good week to start. Our special guest this week is Steve Schmidt from The Lincoln Project, the coalition of Republicans who have dedicated themselves to defeating Trump. And as you'll hear in a moment, he doesn't hold back. There's a full panel roundtable from The Bunker every Wednesday and shorter daily editions every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday. So don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. As I said, from this week's show, here's Steve Schmidt's gentle nuanced take on President Donald Trump. It is a season of utter insanity and lunacy in the United States. We are in the consequences stage of the Trump presidency, which has brought tragedy, weakness, suffering, economic collapse at an epic level. And there is no chance for the country to begin to recover from this, to go through a season of renewal, unless and until Donald Trump is removed from power. And that's to say nothing of his sundering of the Western alliance, his assaults on the dignity of America's closest allies, his fetish for the world's autocrats, his inherent illiberalism, and his utter faithlessness, not just to his oath, but to the idea and ideal of the country, which is as perfect an idea and an ideal as there could be, though we have always been short of achieving it, and the work of each generation of Americans is to move closer to it. He is an abomination without compare, an embarrassment to the country, and the worst president that we have ever had. And there has never been an American who has failed as utterly as this con man and huckster from New York City. Finally, alongside the Let's Get Going campaign, Pretty Patel announces her own campaign, Let's Get You Going, somewhere else. <laughs> More details are emerging on her points-based immigration system. There'll be a fast-track health and care visa for workers who have a job offer for a skilled role within the NHS, but foreign care staff are not covered. Um, Ross, even the government admits the care sector isn't attractive to British workers. Currently, some 350,000 were born outside the UK. Um, How is this supposed to help? Um, I think the government is hoping that the rise in unemployment is going to lead more people to find the care sector attractive. 
as a sector. Now, this hasn't yet happened in terms of fruit picking, which is another another unattractive sector that Britons have shown no inclination to do, despite rising uh, joblessness. But clearly, there are a lot of people in service jobs, uh, working in places like restaurants and so on, who will no longer be working in those over the next few months. And I think they are hoping that the care sector will act, if you like, as a sponge for those people. Uh, personally, I think that's a little over-optimistic, but I suspect it's what is in Priti Patel's mind. But, I mean, considering the crisis in social care has been pushed to front and centre uh, by the COVID crisis, it's really sort of bad politics to look as if you're cutting back on care workers, making life more difficult for them, not giving them the same treatment that you're giving to the NHS workers. Yeah, I mean, you can't cut back on them, basically, uh, not not without inflicting basically cruelty on people you need care workers badly but there is still no social care plan and it has been years now that this plan for social care which was supposed to shake up the way we thought about it was going to happen and I'm sure I've been saying it on Romaniacs for at least 18 months now when is this going to happen we need a care system that actually that that doesn't incentivize everybody to pass off the responsibility for elderly and disabled people's care onto someone else. And at the moment, a lot of the time, through no fault of their own, of councils, GPs, hospitals, care homes, is spent trying to shrug off responsibility for the care for an individual onto someone else because there's a financial advantage in ensuring that somebody else takes care of them. And it's a terrible thing. It's a very, very bad way of organising your social care. You need to incentivise people to want to do this job. And until, until we get that fundamental problem sorted out, we can't even begin to tackle more, more difficult things like how to bring more people into the sector, how to make it more attractive, how to give you some sense, some sense of career progression, for example, which is one of the things that's very difficult in the care sector to, to make people think that there's a future for them there and they can move up. Uh, it, it's, we, we we're still waiting on this, what, what should have been a great leap forward that would have happened years ago. Naomi, on the Bunker Daily last week, uh, you talked about the thousands of people who've technically recovered from COVID, but are still suffering from the effects of the virus. Um, do you know, are measures being taken to um, to prepare for their needs? Is this a, is this a kind of long-term problem uh, that the NHS and the care sector are, are kind of gearing up to tackle? No, which is why I did the podcast. Um, <laughs> and 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 we're at thousands. It is ten. We're talking tens of thousands in the UK alone, and, and millions globally. Um, and it's a hidden crisis, uh, and it's being stored up for the future. Uh, and it will be compounded by a mental health crisis that will um, attach itself to it if these people don't get the the support from the medical community and the care community that they are almost certainly going to need. And Ian, there are things that the government, uh, you know, does because they just think voters aren't going to care about it. But the dementia tax famously nearly did for Theresa May in 2017. Why are the Tories not being more politically astute uh, when it comes to caring for the elderly? Because it's obviously a, a vulnerable point for them. Yeah, but I mean, I think they prioritise, you know, above all things, the, the immigration issue. And by the time that the effects would come in, you know, it's a little bit further down and you can muddy the waters. You can easily get away from the fact that this was your fault. 
you know, rather than just this general sense people have of the political class as a whole has has failed on this. So I just I think that they just think this is a way you could reduce numbers and without thinking that they are really going to have to pay any consequences for it. Well, what's the generous interpretation of prioritizing reducing immigration over uh, actually caring for uh, uh, old and vulnerable citizens? Oh, again, you've you've asked me a question that's beyond my imaginative capacity. I can't give you. I can't give you. A, I can't give that to you. But really, I mean, look. If if you really, really give a fuck about the lives of people in this country, then you wouldn't make reducing immigration your central function of government, as it has been for the last four years. Because you know, it's one of the things is we need it in order to be able to care not just in terms of care homes, but just to have enough people paying taxes in their working life to care for our elderly population. So you just wouldn't have done it in the first place. If any of this, if anything that the government was doing was about actually giving a fuck about the people in this country, then we wouldn't be in this state of affairs. And finally, an adjacent point, uh, pretty Patel related. She reportedly claimed that the police didn't investigate the sweatshops that caused the COVID outbreak in Leicester because they were scared of being accused of racism against South Asians. Uh, there was uproar. These, I did notice, were private comments. Do you think that she actively wanted... But, you know, sometimes you don't know whether it's private private, or just, you know, consciously leaked. Do you think she actively wanted to make this about political correctness rather than labour conditions? Or is this something that, 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 that she would actually find embarrassing that it had leaked out? I don't know the answer to that question. I do believe that she, is, she genuinely is the person that she presents as. Um, and she genuinely has the prejudices that she displays, you know, the p- political prejudices. I mean, so, you know, it seems classic to me that she would look at that problem in that way rather than thinking, you know, we, we have failed over and over again to sort out a regime for labour inspections, which is hard to do. I mean, it is hard to spot this stuff, you know, when, when you start fiddling with the papers, whether you're, you're dropping below minimum wage, it, it is hard and it takes a lot of work. So they don't bother fucking doing it. And it also takes, you know, very often strong trade unions that can point this stuff out. And so they don't bother fucking doing it. And it, it takes also helping immigrants because the, the more that you make it hard for people to reveal an undocumented status, the more you make them nervous about their immigration status, the more likely they are to be vulnerable to exploitative employers. So all of the things that are required to actually fix the problem, they don't want to do and therefore fucking haven't done. And all the things that wouldn't do anything to fix it, like talking about, oh, it's all about, you know, sensitivities over rape, blah, 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 the culture war stuff, you know, doesn't make any difference, but they're generally quite happy to talk about whether it's in private or public. Once again, another bad week for Pretty Patel on Romaniacs. Can't wait for the good one. When, when will the good one come, I wonder? It's the end of the show, which means it's time for the Brexit Bridge. We're building our way back to Europe and every girder gets us further away from the enormous Brexit lorry park. Roz, what's your choice this week? I did uh, struggle a bit this week because it hasn't been a good week, um, as Ian has pointed out, on any cap really for, for, for what links with the, with, the, with the EU. In the end, I thought I'd talk about wind um, because <laughs> offshore wind, <laughs> offshore wind has actually... Uh, increased. It's it's gone up by fifty. It's now generating fifteen point two percent of UK electricity in the first quarter of this year, which is the highest ever. And if you add in all the onshore wind as well, you're getting to about a third of UK electricity generated by wind, which has got to be a good thing. And there's loads and loads of investment at the moment it's in in wind generally, and. This might not seem an obvious way back to Europe, but I think it will stand us in good stead when, as I hope, we rejoin the EU. 
that we have not gone down some kind of Trumpian route of embracing fossil fuels, but are instead being a bit more progressive about renewable energy. Wow, I like the optimism. That's good. No, I mean I agree with you. I don't. I don't think it's it's vain optimism. It's just I'm not used to it. <laughs> I feel less. I feel less sad, and I'm more confused. I'll just check out Twitter. <laughs> And that's the show. Thanks to Naomi. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. Roz. Thank you. And Ian. Cheers, guys. Now for our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Greetings from me to Martin Shonetska, Wayne Tuckfield, Mary and Anthony, and Jordan D. Hello from me to Craig Story, Caitlin Greenwood, Helen Burkett and Jonathan Ayling. A big shout from me to Charlotte Barker, Jeff Hannam, Dennis Drake and Mark Gillies. Thanks from me to Jill Burtwell-Bird, Ian Holderbeck, John McNeil-Scott and David Truby. See you all next week. Stay safe. Wear a mask. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ross Taylor, Ian Dunt and Naomi Smith. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.